0: Hi, everyone. I'm Ben Norton, and this is Geopolitical Economy Report. I'm joined by a good friend and uh, mentor of mine, Ronica Desai, who is a professor at the Department of Political Studies at the University of Manitoba. And we are discussing a new book that she has published, which is called Capitalism, Coronavirus and War. And this is part two of a series that we're doing going through her book and talking about some of the important topics that she discusses, namely capitalism, coronavirus, and war, and in uh, fortunately in the series you can follow along with us um, for free because uh, you can get access to this book for free because a foundation called Knowledge Unlatched allowed uh, the publisher to make this open access. So in the in the description below I will link to the Taylor Francis website where you can download a PDF of this book and. Um, In part one, Radhika and I discussed the narrative surrounding globalization and how it's essentially a myth that is used to propagate uh, neoliberal economics and especially the contradictions of U.S. hegemony and how many of the people studying U.S. hegemony and U.S. dollar hegemony in particular are invested in propagating the idea that U.S. hegemony is natural, that it's inevitable. And we discussed the ongoing crises of capitalism that we see around the world today. Now, um, Radhika, in part one of this series, we also discussed a book that you wrote a decade ago, which is Geopolitical Economy. And in this new book, it's, the full title is Capitalism, Coronavirus and War, A Geopolitical Economy. In many ways, this is kind of an update of the ideas that you had outlined in your previous book a decade ago. How has your analysis of the development of geopolitical economy changed in the past decade? How has it evolved? And how have the political and economic developments that you outlined 10 years ago, how do you see them today?
1: Uh, Ben, I would say that it's uh, an update, but it's also a further development of uh, the basic ideas presented in geopolitical economy. And I guess the best way I find of, of putting, you know, exactly what are the advances that I've made in capitalism, coronavirus, and war over geopolitical economy, I'd say that uh, they involve uh, a, a sort of three different themes that are all, of course, interrelated, namely imperialism, capitalism, and socialism. So basically, in geopolitical economy, I already point, I, I already say that, you know, 1914 was the high point of imperialism. And it's important to say this, because, of course, you um, uh, the, the, there is, of course, a very contradictory and self-contradictory discourse, mainstream discourse about imperialism, which on the one hand wants to claim that imperialism does not exist. And on the other hand, wants to claim that the West will continue to be all powerful in the world forever. So uh, and of course, there is also a sort of in critical as where a lot of people point uh, sort of take the position that imperialism is just as strong today as it ever was. And asserting this is kind of shows how radical you are. But in reality, I, not only do I stick to the idea that imperialism was the high point, uh, sorry, that 1914 was the high point of neo- uh, imperialism and that since then it has been declining, not as fast as you and I would like, but it has nevertheless been declining in terms of its power, its reach, its ability to control overall developments in the world as a whole. And this has of course only been further deepened indeed when I spoke in Geopolitical Economy about how the Uh, a spread of multipolarity was undermining the power of imperialism, I had not probably imagined that within a decade, we would be in a position where uh, uh, the uh, ability of the United States to get its way in the rest of the world would be so powerfully questioned. So I would say that this analysis has, has simply been further deepened and the limits of imperial power are more fully on display and analyzed in capitalism, coronavirus and war. Uh, secondly, you know, uh, I, I also uh, uh, fe- uh, felt, I also say in geopolitical economy that in the further spread of multipolarity, uh, which has always involved what Trotsky called combined development, what other people would have called developmental states, etc., essentially state directed often protectionist industrialization, uh, which uh, has been critical, which has been the way in developing economies, not free markets and free trade. So this, of course, in the early days, when the first uh, powers emerged to challenge Britain's dominance over the world economy, this took capitalist forms in the industrialization of say Germany or the United States, later Japan, etc. After 1917, after the Russian Revolution, this sort of development and industrialization also acquired socialist forms and of course today china as a socialist country is in the forefront of this sort of development and i had already said in uh, in in in, in a geopolitical economy that um that social, the socialist form was often a stronger form of challenge to uh, uh, imperialism etc than capitalist forms of combined development. But this has become, if anything, even clearer. Because, you know, back in uh, 2013, when I published Geopolitical Economy, uh, all the talk was about the BRICs and how there was China, but there were also uh, India... Uh, 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 Russia, Brazil, South Africa, etc. So these other countries were also developing. But I think it has become very clear, particularly in the aftermath of the pandemic shock, that the development of these capitalist developing countries is far weaker, far more subject to interruptions and, 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 and reverses than China's has been. So in that sense, I think the idea that socialism is the strongest and most powerful challenge has been further reinforced. And I would say, challenge to imperialism. And I would further say that today it has also become very clear how little imperialism has to offer to the rest of the world. And because of that, I would say that uh, when uh, uh, countries that are not socialist in any sense will still consider employing socialist methods because they are so manifestly more effective. And also because they will learn, you know, insofar as the increasing numbers of countries are now taking China as a model, they will also learn how Uh, They they, they will also be affected by uh, the deepening of their relations with China uh, and and so lean more towards that, because essentially uh, 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 opening up to capitalism has very little uh, to offer, basically. But finally, and perhaps most importantly, I think that... um, Again, you know, in geopolitical economy, it's very clear that neoliberal financialized capitalism is extremely weak. It is unable to advance, uh, uh, you know, it's unable to create stable, prosperous, broadly prosperous economies and so on that it represents the decline of capitalism. But what has become very clear uh, to me, what became very clear to me in the intervening decade is that the early 20th century probably also constituted the high point of capitalism itself, and why is why is, is that, has this become so much clearer? Is that you know, um, in the aftermath of the two thousand and eight financial crisis, the governments of the capitalist world have really clung to capitalism. That is to say, they have exerted all their powers in order not to expand the economy or to you know uh, uh, deal with inequality or anything, but on the contrary. They have devoted all their efforts to preserving the capitalist character of Western economies. And, and the consequence of that has, of course, been the, the further undermining of the productive foundations of capitalist economies, increasing inequality, increasing political problems, et cetera, et cetera. But again, in the teeth of all of those things, the governments have sought to preserve capitalist character of these and this has simply meant a, a whole decade and more of essentially stagnation rising uh, public discontent and so on and so looked at uh, from the perspective of 40 years of neoliberalism essentially what has become very clear is that uh, uh, you know, I mean, uh, the, the idea generally is that, uh, you know, Marx had predicted a long time ago that basically once capitalism enters its monopoly phase, it it ceases to become historically progressive. It ceases to be able to really expand the forces of production, develop the forces of production. And that point had already been reached in the early 20th century. And it was followed, of course, by the catastrophes of the 30 years crisis, two world wars, a Great Depression, etc. And at the end of this period, the uh, thinking people of this world were all convinced that the world would lean now in a socialist direction because essentially restoring capitalism at the end of the Second World War would have meant everybody thought a return to the Great Depression and all the problems that it caused. So the world was very disillusioned with capitalism because of the Great Depression, because it, it was at the root of the imperialist wars that were the First and Second World Wars etc etc. So the the, the the reputation of capitalism was at a low end and so 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 in this instance then uh, uh, there were these there were these expectations that the world would essentially go in a socialist direction. This however uh, uh, happened only partially in the sense that first world countries, the core capitalist countries basically turned towards a reformed style of capitalism with Keynesian welfare states, uh, full employment policies, great deal of state ownership, uh, uh, welfare states, unemployment benefits, universal health care, universal education, blah, blah, etc. Uh, the second world, you know, the communist world, of course, was communist. And in the third world as well, in the, de- in the decades following the uh, for Second World War, as they more and more countries became independent, they were all pursuing forms of autonomous national development that were distinctly Leaning towards socialism, distinctly leftist. So, in that partial sense, this was uh, proven. But uh, uh, in the world, full whole world, did not become socialist. So, many people look back on the period of the so-called golden age, the big, the longest period of sustained expansion in the world, that was experienced as some sort of vindication of capitalism. See, capitalism has shown how powerful it is. Uh, and then you see and, and so people sort of assumed that capitalism was going to exist forever and so on and so forth, and somehow Marx had been you know uh, wrong, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. But in fact the, that development takes a very different aspect when looked at from the point of view of forty years of neoliberalism because essentially, the shift to neoliberalism, the increasing freedoms that were given to capital and and, and so on, have actually not revived capitalism and instead only further undermined it. So so further undermined its productive capacities, increased inequality and and all of that. So in a certain sense, what it shows us is that what becomes very clear is the only reason why there was a post-war golden age, the so-called long boom of capitalism, is because capitalism was ringed around with uh, socialist measures uh, such as the welfare state and and, and so on and so forth. And only these measures Uh, Permitted capitalism to expand. And once these measures were taken away in or increasingly whittled away in the neoliberal era, capitalism has not shown itself really capable of much productive expansion. Only uh, finance has exploded. Everything else is basically not performing very well. So from this point of view, essentially the Entry of capitalism into its monopoly phase does seem to vindicate Marx's point that at that point, the historical progressiveness of capitalism, such as it was, will cease to have, uh, will will essentially cease. So that is another, I think, insight that has become very clear uh, in uh, in, uh, capitalism, coronavirus and war.
0: Yeah. And something that you highlight, which I think is crucial to understand this current crisis of capitalism we see around the world, is the economic stagnation we've seen in the so-called West. And I was actually just looking the other day at the uh, World Bank data on GDP per capita in the European Union. And this this graph, it, it, it's really revealing. I mean, you see in the 1990s, it was a time of economic stagnation, really, in in the European Union. This is the peak of neoliberalism. And you can see that it zigzags. There were years in which GDP per capita grew and then it declined And then there was a a boom in the 2000s, although again, we can talk about what kind of economic growth that was. A lot of it was low quality economic growth. It was not in the real economy. It was financialized you know, based on speculation. But what's indisputable is since 2008, Europe has been in a persistent recession, at least in terms of looking at GDP per capita, which is a much better measurement because it actually considers population growth. And we can see that in 2008, according to World Bank data, GDP per capita on the European Union was $37,000. And it it persistently declined in the years following it. I mean, it zigzagged again and again. And now it's finally, by 2021, it's finally caught up to the level it was at in 2008. And if we look at the most recent IMF projections for world economic growth, I mean, they're very revealing because they show that the IMF acknowledges that the West is essentially going to be in recession or at the least stagnation. We see countries like Britain are going to be in a recession with their economy shrinking in 2023, according to the IMF projection, which could be honestly over, overly optimistic. And in general, across the so-called West, you see close to zero growth. I mean, in the United States, one percent. And then you compare it to the so-called emerging markets. China, 5%. And I've seen other estimates up to almost 6% they estimate this year. India, 6%. Nigeria, 3%. The emerging market and middle income economies, 4%. So clearly, there is a fundamental crisis going on in these so-called Western economies, even from their own metrics. And again, you know, both, both of us are very critical of simply looking at GDP measurements because it doesn't measure the kind of economic growth you could have more and more financial parasitic speculation that could be considered gdp growth but even according to their own estimates their model is clearly not working
1: absolutely i mean i, I would say a couple of things first of all uh the the uh, sort of leveling off of um a gdp growth in the european union that you showed Uh, this is just taking average per capita GDP. But with that also hides the rising inequality to which Europe has also been subject, even though it is to a lesser extent than what we see in the United States or the United Kingdom and the more neoliberal economy. So this leveling off, in fact, actually probably represents a worsening of this situation rather than simply an evening out of the situation of ordinary Europeans. So that's the first thing. The second thing I'd say is that, yes, I mean, essentially you know the reason why uh, why marx basically said that you know after the monopoly stage is reached there will be no uh, 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 that capitalism will essentially cease to have been historically progressive is because essentially at the monopoly phase the uh, well but, or let me rephrase that the what had been historically progressive about capitalism is the operation of competition but competition inevitably by itself leads to monopoly because after all, only the strongest will be left standing, and everybody else will be outcompeted. So you create oligopolistic or monopolistic situations, and once you have arrived at the monopoly stage, essentially there is no spur to capital for capitalists to invest, and that's partly why we see the kind of uh, uh, scandal-prone capitalism that we have. Because you know, of course, there is the scandals of financialization and the bailouts and all of those things, but also increasingly the most, the biggest, and most influential capital companies are either no longer, they are are essentially uh, uh, exploiting their monopoly status. They are often highly dependent on uh, government uh, uh, initiatives, whether it is privatization to increase their holdings and assets or uh, uh, so-called public-private partnerships in which basically they are reliant on the taxpayer to create demand for them. And of course, the other thing that we have seen in the era of neoliberalism is that demand itself has been restricted chiefly because essentially what has neoliberalism been? It has been a giant sort of policy paradigm to shift income from ordinary working people towards the rich. So for all of these reasons, capitalism has just basically become senile. And uh, and so you don't, um, you know, you're not going to get a lot of, you know, when neoliberals basically said that if we remove all the socialistic, Obligations that were placed on capital, like regulation, taxation, uh, 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 strong unions, etc. If you remove all those things, capitalism will reacquire uh, 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 its original productive mojo. But you are uh, expecting a senile monopoly capitalism to demonstrate the vigors of a young competitive capitalism. And that is not going to happen. That is why neoliberalism has failed. So that's the second point I wanted to make. And finally, one little point further, which is, you know, I think it's really very important. And this further underlines the point that really the time of capitalism is gone. Socialism is the strongest way of resisting imperialism and of developing. Because when you, examine the statistics on the growth of countries like India or Brazil, uh, especially I would say that you have to also understand that this growth is a uh, 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 kind of uh, well, f- for instance, in the case of India as well, they have simply changed the way in which they we have measured we measure GDP. So it greatly exaggerates the growth of the manufacturing sector. But in fact, the manufacturing sector, the productive sector in India, is ailing, whereas all the rentier sectors are expanding. And so, in that sense, I, I would say that uh, in the case of the capitalist countries uh, uh, of this of the BRICS and other, you know, you increasingly the choice of opting for a more, more clearly socialistic direction, with that question will become more urgent even in these countries.
0: Absolutely. And while we see this economic stagnation in the West, we see an increasingly aggressive foreign policy by the United States and the European Union largely following the United States. And you, in, in the book, it's, of course, capitalism, coronavirus, and war – you talk a lot about the importance of the NATO proxy war against Russia and Ukraine, and you say that very clearly in the book that this is a NATO proxy war. And you also point out that the new Cold War that the U.S. is waging against Russia and China did not begin with this new phase of the war in, in Ukraine. You argue that the new, Cold Wars, the, the new Cold War that the United States began launching started on Russia in 2014 and started against China in 2020. So I'm wondering if you can expand on this idea, why you chose those dates for the beginning of the these new, this, the new Cold War that the U.S. is waging against Russia and China.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, I think maybe I should just begin by simply saying that, you know, uh, I've also written articles about this, but the Cold War should not be seen as some kind of an exceptional period. The Cold War was essentially uh, 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 a a continuation, uh, just a chapter in the phase of imperialism, a chapter in which the fact of a powerful socialist challenge to capitalism became the most important dominating uh, challenge to imperialism and that's why you got the Cold War. So, uh, so because, you know, people are sort of often puzzled, you know, if the Cold War ended back in uh, uh, 1990 or 1991 with the dissolution of the Soviet Union, you know, why are we getting new Cold Wars again? And that's because the Cold War had not to do with the competition of capitalism and communism. It had to do with, the the, ex, the the exercise of imperial power and the exercise of imperial power never went away. In fact, subjectively, it was emboldened, even though objectively it was becoming uh, weaker, subjectively, it was emboldened with the end of the Cold War. And that's partly why we've seen a series of unending wars since the end of the so-called Cold War. The United States basically felt that now it could do whatever it liked. However, the fact of the matter was that this was never strictly speaking true, and the United States, first of all, it did not manage to win any of the wars that it has been waging in the twenty-first century, not in Afghanistan, not in Iraq, Libya, Syria, etc. But also, there was something else, which is that essentially, you know, when the uh, when when the, uh, 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 when the Soviet Union was dissolved, uh, at least the people who were instrumental in dissolving it, such as Gorbachev, etc., imagine that somehow having a closer relationship with the west would actually make russia prosperous in reality what they found out is that the closer relationship with the west made russia much weaker the economic crisis that russia experienced during the 1990s with the imposition of shock therapy is truly a marvel in 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 and shall we say economic sadism because in the sense of you know what was visited on russia that you know there was such a great uh, uh, economic retardation that people's People lived less long, literally. Lon- uh, longevity was adversely affected, uh, which you know, which in peacetime is practically you know uh, 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 unknown. So, yeah, sorry, I'm hey. sorry to cut you off, Fradica, but yes. I
0: just want to point out that according to UNICEF, the United Nations Children's Fund, more than three million Russians died excess deaths because of the neoliberal shock therapy imposed on Russia, which, as you said, in peacetimes is unprecedented it shows that economic war is war millions of russians were killed
1: life Absolutely, expectancy for russian
0: true. men declined by 6 to 7 years
1: exactly i mean that's a great statistic thanks ben and, and it really illustrates so basically what happened then by the early 20th by the 21st century is that you know with uh, putin becoming president and with even yeltsin i think towards the end of his life realizing that he was wrong to imagine that Russia would prosper in a closer embrace with the West. So increasingly, you began to see a more independent assertion of Russia, Russia in terms of its foreign policy. With Putin, for example, I think it was in 2007 or 8 that Putin gave a speech at the Munich Security Conference in which he clearly called for the West to stop its provocative NATO expansion, uh, to, to take seriously Russia's, uh, uh, consideration, uh, Russia's security concerns, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Because, as you know, I know, Ben, you have written about this and you have produced the documents showing this, that when the Soviet Union was dissolved, particularly when uh, Gorbachev agreed that Germany would be united and therefore Eastern Europe, which was once part of uh, the Warsaw Pact, would become part of NATO, that the Germany was assured that NATO would not expand further than that a single inch. Uh, you, you, you have all those uh, documents and, and so on. We know that that's the case. And yet NATO continued its provocative behavior, basically thinking that it could easily Uh, uh, prevail over and easily subdue any challenge the Russians represent. And that's what proved to be untrue, because what became clear is that on the one hand, NATO continued its provocations and that provocation reached a peak basically in 2014 when uh, the the US uh, uh, essentially organized a, a, a color revolution, uh, the so-called Maidan revolution, which is really a counter revolution in the sense that it brought a very right wing forces to power, etc. cetera. Um, this, uh, 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 this provocation proved the final uh, 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 sort of uh, 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 demonstrated what the West really wanted from Russia, which is to subdue Russia. And Russia was refusing to be subdued and hence the new Cold War. Against Russia. And of course, that has uh, continued over this long period. And we saw the most recent set of provocations after which the Russians mounted their special military operations uh, in Ukraine, and which now the which has very quickly became a proxy war that the United States-led West is waging against Russia. So so, in that sense, the, the, the new cold war was basically a realization that Russia was not going to be russia was not going to accept subordination and by the way and, the, and then the chinese situation you know you can debate exactly when the Ch- uh, cold war on china was declared but i certainly uh uh people started talking about it and people started observing that essentially there was a, effectively a new cold war in china in the first uh, uh half of 2020 this had become very clear and i think part of this was simply um uh, the 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 fact that China was manifestly doing so much better on the COVID front than the West was doing with the Trump administration sort of getting into one blunder after another and, and and so on so. So, 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 in the China in the China case, basically, you know, throughout the 80s and 90s, the West was actually very open to China, wanted to engage with China, as Clinton said, because they what they felt is that essentially, if you engage with China, if you sort of include China into the global world capitalist system, etc., uh, uh, encourages accession to the WTO, that China would essentially remain a low-cost manufacturer, providing cheap, low technology goods to Western countries, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, China would essentially become subordinated as some kind of neoliberal you know uh, 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 essentially neoliberal subordinated slave country essentially producing things cheaply for for first world countries but it soon became clear particularly after the 2008 financial crisis and over the last decade it has become more and more clear that china has no intention of subordinating itself all china wanted quite rightly i think were uh, more opportunities to trade with the rest of the world to enjoy better relations with the rest of the world which it did but it had it has continued to pursue to its own goals of developing its economy, increasing its technological sophistication. And of course, by the uh, 2020 or so, it was also clear that many of its companies were now in a position to uh, to essentially uh, uh, give Western companies, very sophisticated Western companies a run for their money. Huawei is just one example, but there are many others. So in this way, China's the successes of the of socialist China, the economic successes of socialist China also demonstrated that the United that China was not going to be easily subordinated. And by the way, I should also say that this was slowly becoming clear throughout the decade and more since the 2008 financial crisis. That's why Obama had announced his pivot to Asia, because they were beginning to name China as a sort of a competitor, and increasingly then later on a threat, challenge, etc. And this really sort of exploded uh, in the under the Trump administration. So that's essentially so. So why do we have all these new cold wars? Is because there are now countries that are refusing to subordinate themselves to Western imperialism, and they have the power to make that stick. And this is why the West is reacting the way it is.
0: Yeah, Radhika, you have an incredible fact in, in your book here, which is that 70% of the world's countries traded more with China than with the United States as of 2018. And that is up from 20% of countries in 2001. And what's funny is when, when I read that in your book, I wanted to do more research on that because it's an incredible statistic. And I, and I looked it up. And what's funny is one of the first things that came up was an op-ed written by the neoconservative Republican Senator Tom Cotton from Arkansas, and he wrote this ridiculous article in the National Review called China's Economic World War. And it it shows very clearly that these imperialists in the United States they see China as a threat because it is a large economy that is independent. I mean, he says it very clearly. He says the problem in China is not simply that it refuses to follow orders, the problem is that it is a big economy, he says, he says it's like it's a bad thing. Since 2001, China's economy has grown nearly 1,200%. The People's Republic of China today makes more than one quarter of the world's automobiles, a third of all merchant ships, 40% of mobile phones, 70% of televisions, and 96% of shipping containers. And then he mentions this fact that a stunning 70% of countries trade more with China than with the United States. It really does reflect this zero-sum worldview where China can't develop economically because that means that it's that the US can no longer be the world's economic hegemon. He doesn't in this article, he doesn't even make a pretense of saying that China is a threat because you know they're authoritarian or they're stealing our intellectual property or whatever human rights abuses allegations. No, he says the problem with China is its economy is too big and too productive. And we have to stifle its growth. And it's so funny seeing those comments against comments made by people like Francis Fukuyama, whom you quote in your book as well. And this is another quote that that has clearly aged very well. Francis Fukuyama, in his book, uh, The End of History in 1992, he, he said, The universalization of Western liberal democracy is the final form of human government. But here we are, uh, you know, 30, 31 years later, and that prediction is not looking very good. Universalization of Western liberal democracy being the final form of human development. In your book, you talk about the emergence of the Beijing consensus, as opposed to the Washington consensus. Of course, the Washington consensus refers to the neoliberal policies imposed on countries by the IMF and the World Bank in the 1990s. What is the Beijing consensus?
1: Well, first of all, let me just say that Beijing has not proposed this. People are Other people are using the term Beijing consensus. I think China generally has been extremely careful to say China is not a model for other countries. China's experience is distinctly national. And I think that that's certainly true. Of course, that doesn't mean that you cannot, uh, that doesn't mean that you should not and cannot learn from China. There's much to learn from China's development. And above all, what China is, is a vindication of what we call combined development in geopolitical economy terms. That is to say that the only way to develop is for uh, uh, is through relatively heavy state intervention in which the state uh, uh, which is a state which is committed to the interests of ordinary people of those countries not any state but that kind of state it's committed to expanding its economy etc uh, uh does so uh in ways that uh, uh that, that are that, that essentially don't just open up the country to the corporations of other more powerful countries but develop their own productive capacity so in that sense i think china is something to learn from and as i say you know as the Western model becomes decreasingly attractive. Everybody can see the, the clay feet of the giant, so to speak. Um, and all sorts of policymakers in countries where they have governments that are committed to popular welfare, in even in some minimal sense, will be learning from China. And that's what we may call, if if we may use the word Beijing consensus, that's what we would call the Beijing consensus. But I also wanted, you know, when you were um talking about uh, this Tom Cotton story. I also was reminded that you know uh, George Kennan is supposed to have said. In fact, he had. He said uh, uh, back in um, 1948. So right, you know, few years after the end of the Second World War, uh, he said uh, about the United Whoa. States. He said uh, we have 50 percent of um the world's wealth but only 6.3 percent of its population in this situation we cannot fail to be the object of envy and resentment our real task in the coming period is to devise a pattern of relationships in which will permit us to maintain this position of disparity without positive detriment to our national security so in that you see i think that this this is really uh, 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 revealing because the United States doesn't just want to be a prosperous country, but it wants to always be bigger than all the rest of the world combined and have to exercise a huge dominance over the rest of the world economy.
0: Yeah, I mean, I personally think that this should be this the this, the unofficial slogan of the U.S. economic ideology, which is we must maintain this position of disparity they call it disparity, and that that's the goal. That, that's what imperialism is essentially
1: absolutely. and And that's that has been the u s. goal. You know, one of the things I do in geopolitical economy, and this story is told in more briefer form in capitalism, coronavirus, and war as well, is that essentially the United states, um by the early twentieth century, many things had become very clear. To American policy-making elites. Number one, that it had finished all the internal colonization, essentially the expansion of the original 13 colonies up to California and so on. So the continental United States acquired its present boundaries. Uh, so there was nowhere <clears throat> nowhere else, nothing more to colonize within the United States. So it began to look abroad. But as it began to look overseas, what was very clear is that the world was already divided up into massive empires, powerful empires. And what's more, nationalism was also emerging. So it became very clear that uh, because, you know, these guys, they, they, they wanted the United States to always continue expanding, right? Expanding its influence. So basically they decided that since they couldn't acquire an empire, it was impossible, you know, uh, it would require too many resources. It would it would require wars that could not be conducted, etc. So what I argue there is that in fact they decided that they were going to try to essentially, you know, the sterling system was already becoming destabilized. So they would essentially try to give the dollar the role that the, that sterling had created, and essentially try to uh, uh, maintain a leading position on in the world through that, and. Um, so and 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 so so this formative desire and 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 throughout this period, the United States essentially saw itself as becoming the new world leader, just as Britain had been before that. Um, made a big hash of it in the interwar period, and then in the postwar period, sort of it seemed for a while as though the United States might have achieved this, but in reality, the United States acquired this role precisely at that point in history, where the power of imperialism as a whole. Was being more and more successfully challenged. So, but anyway, the the, the the so 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 in the case of the United States, what you see is this astonishing ambition, like you say, and brazen an ambition. You what we want to maintain this disparity which favors us. This is for, this is our right. It's our God given right to do that. So they have what the ambition has been here, but of course their capacities have been declining ever more quickly.
0: Absolutely, and. In your book, Radhika, you tackle three huge topics and you integrate them together. Capitalism, coronavirus, and war. The crisis of capitalism, the coronavirus pandemic, and the various responses of governments around the world, and war, specifically the new Cold War and the NATO proxy war in Ukraine. We just talked about that. Let's talk about the the second of those three, the COVID pandemic. You argue in your book that the COVID pandemic showed the kind of zombie capitalism in, in the Western neoliberal economies. And if we compare their response, which was objectively a public health disaster, the U S had one of the world's highest death rates, more than a million people died from COVID. And then especially hit marginalized communities, black uh, Americans, Latinos, indigenous Americans, and, and, uh, You point out that the countries that dealt with COVID the best, the most successfully were the countries that have socialist models, China, Vietnam, Laos, Cuba. And of course, we could spend the entire hour talking about the the various Western narratives about China. It's, It's so funny seeing how for two years, the narrative was that China committed this egregious mistake with its zero COVID policy. And then when China decided to move away from its zero COVID policy... Then we were bombarded with propaganda telling us that China is sacrificing its population. But we've seen that, of course, that all of the the hysterical, uh, you know, sky is falling predictions about the way China has been able to transition were all false. China has dealt with the transition very successfully. So what do you take as as a geopolitical economist? What do you take? as lessons from the experience of the COVID pandemic in the past few years?
1: Yeah, you know, I think that of course the COVID pandemic was a very serious public health emergency and the world has indeed gone through a ringer of some countries more than others. But from the very start, it was always very clear to me that this uh, public health emergency was going to test Capitalism And it's go- it was going to find capitalism wanting particularly those capitalist countries such as the U.S. and the U.K. that have gone furthest down the neoliberal road. Essentially, because what we have is a situation in which for the last 40 years, our governments have uh, 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 have, have committed themselves to neoliberalism on the grounds that somehow neoliberalism was going to revive the economy. But then continued down that road, even though it became clear year after year, decade after decade, that no such revival was taking place. Because for the simple reason that neoliberalism is simply a way of keeping these societies capitalist. Because the alternative would have been uh, back in the 1970s when the stagnation, the crisis of stagflation occurred. There were two alternatives. One was to continue further down the road of socialistic reform, which would have put, you know, which would have made these societies even less capitalist than before, or to reject that and move in a neoliberal direction. And that's the direction we moved in, not because neoliberalism was going to revive the economies because that was the only way of keeping these economies uh, capitalist. In any case, the result has been essentially A spiral of economic decline, decreasing state capacity, uh, decreasing commitment to popular welfare and all of these things. So I said that this was going to show. Uh, it was going to show that capitalism itself, it was going to challenge capitalism itself. And it was going to show that capitalist countries' coping mechanisms, namely its political systems, would also be found wanting. And that's what we saw in the response to the pandemic, essentially. And we, we, we will discuss this in greater detail later on uh, in a, in the, when we discuss the relevant chapter where where I go into this in much greater detail, but essentially, capitalist governments uh, were exposed as not even wanting to, not only failing to, but not even wanting to make the saving of lives their overriding priority. As you know, the overriding priority was to flatten the curve, not to exhaust already weakened public health systems. That was the idea. So you can imagine that from the start, in Western countries, lives were It was agreed that lives were going to be sacrificed. This was essentially a a very murderous, as I put it uh, 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 in one of my writings. I said this is essentially really a murderous route to take. Um, Anyway. So, so uh, uh, you know, Engels use use the expression "social murder." You know, we, this is what it has amounted to. Uh, and of course, in various countries, in the United States, there is no sh- such thing. But in the UK, at least, they have instituted a public inquiry into the government's handling of the pandemic. We don't know what's going to happen, what's going to come out of that. But that's uh, that's what. Um, Uh, 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 that's, we will see what happens there. But so, so the capitalist countries have performed abysmally, you can see all the uh, statistics that I give, you know, with thousands of uh, deaths per million, whereas China and all socialist countries in general have performed much, much better, often under, against great odds. Now, uh, in the case of China, in particular, what's really amazing is the sort of profound commitment that they made right from the start, that what matters is the saving of lives. You see, in Western countries, we were told that we have to try to balance the savings of lives versus livelihoods, which was just a euphemism of for the capitalist economy and the power of capitalists. Um, but in China, there was no such dilemma. People said we are going to, the government and authority said we are going to save lives, and that's what they did. But in the process, they actually did a much better job of saving their socialist economy. By contrast, here, lives were sacrificed. Uh, the the economy livelihoods were not saved, but the capitalist economy was saved. Indeed, not only was it saved, but as you know, the fortunes of leading capitalists in this in these societies shot up. These people have often vastly increased their wealth at a time when the pandemic was uh, raging, when the economy itself was actually plunging. The fortunes of these very rich people were going up because remember also the. Chief reason is financialization. Financialization was leading to a decline of the productive economy. Meanwhile, financial markets were climbing uh, higher and higher uh, with no apparent support whatsoever.
0: Yeah, and I think what further bolsters your argument is not only was the response from the socialist states the most effective, and again, China, Laos, Vietnam, Cuba, but also the response of other countries that have much more state intervention in the economy, so for instance, Japan and South Korea, which follow what's often known as the the East Asian model or the Asian developmental model, which despite Western neoliberals often trying to take credit for the so-called you know Asian tigers, it was not a neoliberal model. This is something that the Korean economist Ha Jun Chang has talked a lot about, that South Korea had one of the most protectionist economies in the world during its peak of development from the fifties until the eighties. And Japan also similarly did not follow a neoliberal model and Japan and South Korea and Singapore, another country where, again, there, you can have criticisms of the Singaporean model. And I certainly do myself, but it is not, it's decidedly not a neoliberal model. Ha-Jun Cheng has pointed out that, that Singapore has some of the most state ownership of its economy as a percentage of GDP compared to the other economies in all of the world. It has, I think if I remember correctly, he said that it has more than one quarter of GDP in the Singaporean economy comes from state-owned enterprises. So that's clearly not a neoliberal model. And those countries dealt with COVID significantly better to such a degree that the U.S. and Italy and several other Western countries were relying on uh, Chinese uh, uh, protective equipment, PPE. And and uh, Cuba sent doctors to Italy and other European countries. I mean, the reality is that Italy, a country that has, I mentioned Italy specifically because we know that this is a country in the south of Europe where the European Union has imposed neoliberal austerity measures on this country for ever since the 2008 crisis. And we see the human impact on the people of Italy that are that is the result of these neoliberal policies it dealt with the, the pandemic significantly worse than, for say, for instance, uh, say, Germany, and this, this brings me to the question that I wanted to raise, which is an interesting point that you you raise in this book, because we are talking about how in general, in in the West, there has been a trend toward neoliberalization, if you will, financialization of the economies. but. You are careful to point out in your book that there still are distinctions between the German and Japanese model and the Anglo-American model, the U.S. and British model. You write that neoliberal financialized capitalism, best exampled by the United States and, and Britain, is the only form in which capitalism can exist today. The more productively oriented capitalism that still lingers in places like Germany and Japan has always been in danger of serving as a stepping stone to socialism. And for me, looking at the U.S. policy toward Germany now, where the U.S. is forcing Germany to sacrifice its economy at the altar of NATO imperialism and de-industrializing Germany, I think that further, uh, again, bolsters the, the argument that you're making, that the closer Germany gets to the United States and NATO, the more it moves away from its productive economy, and the more it moves toward the financialized neoliberal model.
1: Yeah, I mean, certainly the the the, the current um, the, the the current response of the of the German government to what's going on to the whole Ukraine war seems really bewildering because essentially it is kind of uh, 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 exceeding. To American demands, which are essentially that it should cease its reliance on Russian energy, which many would argue has been the secret of the success of, uh, uh, of, of, of Germany in in the recent past, you know, and 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 so on. So, um, this reliance must be ended, and uh, the Germans must make themselves uh, reliant on much more expensive sources of energy, including. US sources which are far more expensive and by the way environmentally much more destructive so uh, you know any kudos that anybody wants to give to, to the Biden administration on the climate issue m- must think again um so so that that is really quite amazing uh, uh that, that, that they are willing to do this um and I would I would not be very surprised if both at the elite level and at the at the popular level people began to resist this. There are already lots of demonstrations in Germany against the war, et cetera. But 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 and and also I would say that there are probably divisions within the German elite. So for example, just let me give you two examples. I read the uh, interview that Angela Merkel is said to have given, in which she's supposed to have said that we were only going to um we we only um Uh, uh, engaged in the Minsk Accords. We only negotiated the Minsk Accords in order to give Ukraine time to arm itself. In reality, she said nothing of the sort. What she said is in retrospect, Ukraine used that time to arm itself, which is a completely different thing because it does not make any sense. The fact of the matter is that over the last, well, certainly in this century and, and there have been other instances of this in the past, uh, uh, where, you know, the, the the Germans, the Europeans led by the Germans and the French have repeatedly assert, tried to assert their autonomy vis-a-vis the United States uh, 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 and tried to sort of secure for themselves their own independent security policy. And any such policy has always involved better relations with Russia, because if you create, make Russia into an enemy, then in order to be secure, the Europeans must rely on the United States. So the only way in which an autonomous European security policy can be created is by making by, by bettering relations with Russia. And there is absolutely no reason why they shouldn't. And as you know, even a couple of years ago, for example, at the various NATO summits, you know, President Macron was calling NATO brain dead and so on and so forth. So for a lot of these reasons, that the Europeans were asserting their autonomy and they were essentially getting their way. And in many ways, you can see this war, which is a proxy war against Russia, is can also be seen as a war uh, that the United States is waging against Germany, as you were saying. Uh, and and as, as, as I also uh, argue in my book, that the United States essentially wants to make Germany uh, into a sort of a, a weaker version of a financialized uh, uh, neoliberal uh, economy, whereas historically, and this goes back to the earliest periods of industrialization, economies like that of Germany and Japan have always been. Uh, so sort of they have essentially been sort of like capitalist versions of China today, in the sense that they have been committed to having a broad productive base, an efficient and competitive productive base, uh, and 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 you know so much so that as you are probably many in the audience will be too young to remember, but in the 1980s, for example. Just as today, everybody's raising the specter of China vis-a-vis the United States. At that time, a lot of people expected that Japan was going to overtake the United States uh, in terms of per capita GDP and even GDP and so on and so forth. And people thought, you know, and and in 1990, uh, 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 the 1992 uh, presidential election, you witnessed the most successful third party candidacy, probably in the 20th century, namely that of Ross Perot. And Ross Perot, as a businessman, ran on a platform which said, we can't have these free trade policies. We must, in order to beat Japan, we must emulate Japan, we need greater state intervention in the economy, we need industrial policy, we need to manage our trade better, etc, etc. And of course, he was uh, defeated. But nevertheless, it showed, you know, he really came at various points, his popularity was quite high, and the number of people intending to vote for him was very high. So you can see how serious this problem is. And yes, historically, there have been two very different models. And incidentally, if you read capitalism, coronavirus and war, what becomes clear is that the Anglo American model, which is the today the most new, they are poster childs for neoliberal, poster children for neoliberal financialized capitalisms. And this is very deeply intertwined in the British case with its imperial uh, uh, power and in the American case with its attempted. Uh, with its attempt to try to emulate british-style imperial dominance over the world economy because in order to have that, you need to essentially create a much more financialized economy than uh, would then would be good if your aim was to have a productive and competitive economy.
0: Absolutely. And you talked about the u.s economic war against Japan. The Chinese Foreign Ministry recently published a report on U.S. hegemony. It's called U.S. hegemony and its perils. I did a separate video and an article about that. It was a very interesting article, a very interesting report from China. And in that, they talk about the U.S. policies of economic war against Japan. So clearly, China is studying that history very closely. They understand the parallels. And I should point out that it was the godfather of neoliberalism, Ronald Reagan himself, who imposed 100% tariffs on Japanese goods in 1987. And of course, this is the same president who gave constant payons to the glorious free market and free enterprise system and talked about how protectionism and tariffs are bad. And in the meantime, he imposed tariffs on Japanese goods. And this, this was in 1987, but it wasn't the first time he, had, he first started imposing tariffs on Japanese motorcycles and then other technology. And this is after, in 1985, the Plaza Accord, they basically permanently destroyed the competitiveness of the Japanese economy by overvaluing the, the Japanese yen in the Plaza Accord. Now, what I wanted to conclude with today here, Radika, is a quote that you use at the end of the introduction, chapter one of your book. And I think this would be a good way in which we can transition into our discussion in part three in the next episode. You say that what the current crisis of capitalism that the world is seeing, what it requires is a far more radical analysis of capitalism and its trajectory, one that Marxism can supply, but only after decades of misinterpretation are removed from it, and historical understanding of capitalism and its relation to socialism are reestablished. That's what this book sets to do. So maybe you can briefly summarize with what you mean by that, and that will bring us into the next part of our discussion.
1: Yeah, you know, uh, Ben, I, I've uh, of course been uh, uh, studying Marx for decades, but over the last. Uh, well, about over the last fifteen odd years, I've also started writing a great deal about Marx and the interpretation of Marx and so on. And over the over the this period, I mean, basically, you know, what happened as well is as I was writing geopolitical economy, and I wanted to frame it in broadly Marxist terms. I began to encounter more and more difficulties with the way in which Marxists themselves understand Marx, which is very very problematic. So, very briefly, what I began to understand is that going back even to the late 19th century, so you know really within a decade or so of Marx's death, uh, perhaps even while Engels was still alive, a certain type of tendency to misinterpret Marx was already emerging and it had to do with the emergence of neoclassical economics because neoclassical economics emerges circa 1870 and then over the next many decades it develops and one of its key themes, even at at its origin as well as of course more and more prominent as uh, prominently in the decades that followed had been a type of anti-socialism and anti-Marxism. And and you would have thought that Marxists knowing this would have essentially from the start challenged it. Uh, and, 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 uh, And, And in some ways, of course, they do challenge it. But broadly speaking, what you in fact found was what Bukharin called a policy of theoretical reconciliation, being followed by Marxists in relation to a, an approach that had emerged precisely to challenge socialism, Marxism, etc., etc. So this policy of the result of this policy of theoretical reconciliation was um, uh, was was to create something called Marxist economics. Now that is a bit of a contradiction in terms because what Marx did was critical political economy rather than you know for him there was no economics assumes that there is a separate sphere of society called the economy. Marx assumed no such thing. That's why he called his um, uh, his, uh, his 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 um, his uh, 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 own work as you know he thought of his own work as an engagement with a classical political economy for which you look at all of society, and of course you look at it as a historically changing whole. So that's how Marx looked at it. And what we find instead is that what what essentially passes for Marxist economics has been a more than century long by now attempt to try to fit Marxism into the antithetical, theoretical, and methodological framework of neoclassical economics. And the result has been to create a series of accusations against Marx, which are actually not valid. So for example, that Marx's analysis of capitalism as contradictory value production suffers from a so-called transformation problem, which cannot transform values into prices. This wasn't Marx's problem, it was Ricardo's problem. But since these people are more Ricardians than they are Marxists, they stick this on Marx. They they claim that Marx, Marx did not believe that uh, capital, the capitalism's tendency to, 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 to create, uh, to, to uh, essentially, to, towards demand deficit was a big problem. They sort of erased this problem because neoclassical economics thinks in equilibrium terms and you know the, the only under exceptional circumstances are there any problems on this front. This is absolutely not the case. And one of the first major articles I wrote was basically showing chapter and verse in volume one in the Grundrisse, in Volume 1, in Volume 2, in Volume 3, how in fact Marx says repeatedly that this is not only a big problem in capitalism, but it is the most fundamental cause of crisis in capitalism. And of course, then they say that Marx was wrong, that over the long run, uh, profits tended to fall. Marx was not at all wrong. And the whole reasoning uh, that Marxist economists give for their, their position is also deeply problematic. So in all of these ways, you get essentially, you we have now created a situation in which you have uh, major intellectuals who are often professors in you know, mainstream academic universities who say on the one hand that they are Marxists, And on the other hand, that Marx was wrong. Well, what could be more useful to the establishment? So what I'm trying to do in this uh, capitalism, coronavirus and war and in geopolitical economy and a whole lot of other things I've written, I'm basically trying to say that, you know, if you if you are not already embroiled in all the false controversies created by Marxist economics, avoid it. Go straight and read Marx and Engels' work. It is far more useful and interesting in understanding our position. Indeed, it is today, I would say, more so than ever, because finally we are seeing uh, the moment arrive when it is becoming broadly clear, even to people who are not Marxist, that we cannot continue with capitalism, not just you know, do capitalism differently, as some people like to say, but we cannot continue with capitalism, we need to replace it with some other system. So in this context, you know, and, you know, I don't think Marx would care whether his name is taken or not. But the fact of the matter is, this is the most interesting, profound analysis that we have. And it will help us to understand our current situation. If we don't use it, we will simply have to reinvent all the wheels that it has invented. So we might as well, you know use not not reinvent the wheel and and use the wheels that we already have overwhelming majority of which are in the in the writings of marx and engels so anyway so 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 we will be talking about this in future future episodes but basically what i'm trying to do is to give you an account of the present crisis which accords with marx's indictment of capitalism which develops that analysis more fully because as i've also argued geopolitical economy itself is you can find the roots of it in marx's own writing but of course marx didn't have the time to develop it fully but it's there the 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 roots are there the kernel the rational kernel of that is there and what i'm trying to do is develop that analysis
0: absolutely i mean we, we, we will conclude in a moment here, but I just want to add, because you raised a crucial point about the emergence of economics as a separate discipline from political economy. I mean, this is a point that Utsa Patnaik has talked a lot about, which is that the emergence of economics as a separate discipline is rooted in European colonial ideology. She points out that all of the classical political economists, they did not study economics as a discipline. Marx, of course, studied philosophy. Adam Smith studied philosophy. Even Keynes, you know, Keynes did not study economics as a discipline. He studied mathematics and philosophy. And Alfred Marshall, the, the father of neoclassical economics, tried to convince Keynes to study economics as a new discipline. And Keynes wasn't interested. So you could say that really the entire history of economics, which is a modern history, which emerges in the late 19th century, is It is a fight against political economy that, I mean, there are attempts to try to synthesize them, as you mentioned, Marxists who try to synthesize Marxism with Marxist political economy with neoclassical economics. But uh, as you argued, I think very well, that seems to me to be a fool's errand. Um, So we could spend so much time talking about that. But I think that's a very interesting, thought provoking note that we can end on. And that's a topic we can bring up in, in future discussions I want to repeat for people that in the description below, I have a link to the website, the um, Taylor and Francis website, where you can find Radhika's book, Capitalism, Coronavirus and War, A Geopolitical Economy, and you can download it for free. You can get a PDF thanks to the Foundation Knowledge Unlatched, and you can follow along as we go through the series chapter by chapter discussing this important book. Um, Radhika is a professor in the Department of Political Studies at the University of Manitoba. She's also the convener of the International Manifesto Group and the Geopolitical Economy Research Group. Is there anything else you want to mention, Radhika, as we conclude?
1: No. In fact, please do provide the links to the International Manifesto Group. And please also uh, tell people that there is a, a manifesto that they would probably be interested in reading and perhaps signing, etc.
0: Absolutely. I am also involved in the IMG. They do a lot of great work. So I will link to that and the book in the description below. And I will also link to a a playlist so we can uh, put we'll put together all of the episodes in this series so people can follow along. The first part was an introduction. This part two is going to be based on chapter one of the book on the introduction. And we'll come back in two weeks to discuss part three. Um, or to chapter two, which will be part three of the series. I'm Ben Norton. I was joined by Radhika Desai. I want to thank everyone for watching or listening, and I'll see you all next time.
1: Great. Thanks, Ben.